namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami I thought I would begin today by reading that um, story I mentioned the other day. This is Buddhist Economics by Venerable Payuto, and uh, the story about the uh, poor farmer who is coming to listen to the, the Buddha's teaching. And um, so this is actually the, the way that uh, Venerable Payuto finishes this book. It's like it's the, the denouement of um, his whole um, say message in this Buddha, uh, book about Buddhist economics. And... Uh, it's uh, a quote from uh, the Dhammapada commentary. So that's a, a collection of very rich and <coughs> colorful stories that uh, go behind each of the Dhammapada verses. And uh, so this is the origin. So you, um, that's not uh, it's so much a, to the canon itself. So this is uh, called Wealth and Spiritual Development. The Buddha taught that basic material needs must be met before spiritual development can begin. The following story illustrates how hunger is both a cause of physical suffering and an obstacle to spiritual progress. One morning, while the Buddha was residing in the Jetavana monastery near the city of Savati, he sensed with his psychic powers that the spiritual faculties of a certain poor peasant living near the city of Alavi were mature enough for him to understand the teachings and that he was ripe for enlightenment. So later that morning, the Buddha set off walking to Alavi, some 30 yojanas, about 40 kilometer, 48 kilometers away. The inhabitants of Alavi held the Buddha in great respect, and on his arrival, warmly welcomed him. Eventually, a place was prepared for everyone to gather together and to listen to a discourse. However, as the Buddha's particular purpose in going to Alavi was to enlighten this one poor peasant, he waited for him to arrive before starting to talk. The peasant heard the news of the Buddha's visit, and, since he had been interested in the Buddha's teaching for some time, he decided to go to listen to the discourse. But it so happened that one of his cows had just disappeared, and he wondered whether he should go and listen to the Buddha first, and look for his cow afterwards, or look for the cow first. He decided that he should look for the cow first, and quickly set off into the forest to search for it. Eventually the peasant found his cow and drove it back to the herd, but by the time everything was as it should be, he was very tired. The peasant thought to himself, time is getting on. If I go back home first, it'll take up even more time. I'll just go straight into the city to listen to the Buddha's discourse. Having made up his mind, the poor peasant started walking into Alavi. By the time he arrived at the place set up for the talk, he was exhausted and very hungry. When the Buddha saw the peasant's condition, he asked the city elders to arrange uh, some food for the poor man, and only when the peasant had eaten his fill and was refreshed did the Buddha start to teach. While listening to the discourse, the peasant realized the fruit of stream entry, the first stage of enlightenment. The Buddha had fulfilled his purpose in traveling to Alavi. After the talk was over, the Buddha bade farewell to the people of Alavi and set off back to the Jetavana monastery. During the walk back, the monks who were accompanying him started to discuss the day's events. What was all that about? The Lord didn't seem quite himself today. I wonder why he got them to arrange food for that peasant like that before he would agree to give his discourse. The Buddha, knowing the subject of the monks' discussion, turned back towards them and started to explain his reasons, saying, When people are overwhelmed and in pain through, <coughs> through suffering, they are incapable of understanding religious teaching. Buddha went on to say that hunger is the most severe of all illnesses and that conditioned phenomena provide the basis for the most ingrained suffering. Only when one understands these truths will one realize the supreme happiness of Nibbana. Buddhism considers economics to be of great significance. This is demonstrated by the Buddha having the peasant eat something before teaching him. Economists might differ as to whether the Buddha's investment of a 45-kilometer walk was worth the enlightenment of one single person, but the point is that not only is right livelihood one of the factors of the Eightfold Path, but that hungry people cannot appreciate the Dhamma. Although consumption and economic wealth are important, they are not goals in themselves. 
but are merely the foundations for human development and the enhancement of the quality of life. They allow us to realize the profound Sorry, they allow us to realize the profound after eating. The peasant listened to the Dhamma and became enlightened. <clears throat> Buddhist economics ensures that the creation of wealth leads to a life in which people can develop their potentials and increase in goodness. Quality of life, rather than wealth for its own sake, is the goal. So again, that's Buddhist economics. It's a wonderful little book. Um, Venerable Paiuto is a very gifted scholar, also very, um, uh, he always teaches in a very appropriate way and uh, to things that are very pertinent and um, kind of, uh, <coughs> directly useful for individuals and for society as a whole. Uh, this next talk uh, by Lumpur Sumato from Don't Take Your Life Personally is, <coughs> was given on the 8th of August 2003, and this is at the Leicester Summer School again. And this talk is entitled, Seeing the Path. The four stages in Buddhism, stream entry, once return, non-return, and full liberation, Sotapanna, Sakadagamin, Anagamin, and Arahant, are reference points. When people try to figure out whether they are stream enterers or not, they miss the point, really. Of course, the ego would like to be a stream enterer. If you've been meditating for some time, you would like to get a title for it, or a degree of some kind. It's the reflective quality that's necessary, however, and for that, the ten fetters, the Sangyojanas, are very helpful. So that's the, the model of the, um, the ten fetters that describe those, those four stages. Um, so that Sangyojana is uh, the Pali word for a fetter. So a fetter means like chains or handcuffs or uh, things that, that tie, uh, tie us down. And so with each of those stages, a certain number of the, the fetters are, are broken, that fall, they fall away. In the Abhidhamma of the Pali Canon and so forth, there are all these lists. They're like inventories of human experience. Sometimes such texts can be overlooked. Sometimes they can be given too much significance. We take the definition of a stream-enterer, say, and then we try to attain it. This is how we tend to misuse the conventions that we align ourselves with. Because we're so developed in intellectual knowledge, we can figure things out quite easily. We can analyze, criticize, define, limit, and compare. That's how we are educated. That's what our education amounts to. But I've noticed that people who spend too much time doing that often end up in total despair. It all gets too complicated. The Abhidhamma can seem so mind-boggling, especially if you start with it, that it makes Buddhism look very complex and difficult. It gives the impression that to be able to differentiate the subtleties of mental states would take a very special kind of human being indeed. The intellectual approach, then, is one end of the spectrum. It's certainly interesting for people who have an affinity with that way of learning. They generally like the brilliance of that approach. So in this respect, uh, what Lumpur is talking about is, say, if you take the, the three qualities that um, need to be uh, understood and, and uh, need to be penetrated, need to fall away for stream entry to be realized. Then <coughs> those are self-view, uh, self sakayaditi, and uh, skeptical doubt, vichikicha, and then also um, silapataparamasa, attachment to conventions, to rites and rituals, and so on. So that by looking in the Abhidhamma, and uh, looking up these sort of technical definitions of all those qualities, say, okay, what is self-view? And then going into all the, the details and the fine anatomy of self-view, uh, or of um, what is doubt, what is, uh, what is this referring to, how does doubt work, um, sila pataparamasa, what, is that, uh, what does that um, do, how does the mind get caught up in that, and going into the, the refined detail of it, even though you can have these um, very impressive uh, sets of categories and lists, the, the Abhidhamma is rather like the periodic table, you know, all the, all the elements are lined up in neat columns and in their, in their neat boxes and everything is arranged uh, in a, a very, say, tidy, systematic way. Um, and so for, for people who like logic and reason and order, then that can be very, very attractive. Um, but also when you get down into the detail of it, it will say uh, you get things like, you know, in every mind moment, there are 17 separate um, subdivisions of every mind moment. You have 64 mind moments in a finger snap. So to be able to observe all of those 17 factors in a single mind moment when you've got 
uh, 64 of them in a, in a finger snap, that takes some pretty acute attention. So how could I ever do that? How can you slow down time so much to even be able to, to see that? So that sometimes when people study Avidhamma, it seems that, that any kind of, of real liberation is, is uh, uh, kind of completely beyond the scope. It's sort of super Olympic class um, meditation is, is needed. And, that, um, uh, and, and so often what happens is that uh, people will sort of study Abhidhamma for the sake of the sort of intellectual tidiness and neatness of it and uh, in, in a way learn the, the, the anatomy of how everything works like a, you know, a doctor, you're studying it in, in university or studying in the college, and you, you, you learn all the um, lessons of anatomy down to the finest degree, to the, to the most sort of subtle detail, but you never actually help anyone to recover from an illness. <laughs> so you've got, to, you've got the, the knowledge, but you're not really applying it. And so that um, uh, in, the, in Thailand, in particular, the, um, the meditation schools, uh, the forest monasteries and the meditation monasteries, they don't tend to spend too much uh, attention on the Abhidhamma because of that the tendency to, for people to over-intellectualize about it. In, in Burma, and uh, to a degree in Sri Lanka, apparently, they, the Abhidhamma is much more um, sort of joined together with meditation so that uh, people will be uh, not just uh, using Abhidhamma as an intellectual discipline or, or format, but they'll be, uh, say, applying that and using it to support meditation, so they're not quite so divided. But in Thailand, you tend to find most meditation teachers are not very interested in Abhidhamma at all. And that the, that the people who are the Abhidhamma scholars are mostly in the, in the universities or, or in the, <coughs> are busy getting PhDs uh, uh, and, um, and such like. So that, uh, it's, it's much more of a sort of a divided interest. Like uh, <coughs> I heard uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa being quoted uh, uh, as saying, Abhidhamma, Abhi means much, too much. <laughs> that was it. <yeah. laughs> End of discussion. We can also make the practice of meditation sound complicated. First you do Samatha Vipassana, then you develop the jhanas, then you do the four foundations of mindfulness, and so on. And it's beautifully described, but it just makes it all sound so complicated. There seems so much to think about, so much to determine. And how do we pick up on the terminology, say, in Pali? Some of the old translations of Buddhist texts are not all that accurate. They were translated not by Buddhist practitioners, but by academics, linguists, and scholars. Maybe they were accurate as literal literal translations, but some of them just missed the point of what the words actually mean. Buddhism is a different world outlook, a different basis for experiencing phenomena, and this needs to be taken into account when translating. So, for example, um, in the Pali Text Society, the, uh, the, the word jhana for meditative absorption um, for in, in quite a number of books was translated as musing. So the first musing, the second musing, the third musing. So, mm, <laughs> so that, uh, which in English, that's what muse, to muse means to sort of to to think about, to ponder, to kind of, hmm, to, uh, and to kind of let your mind drift. And so for the people who were translating, they, they felt that was kind of close enough or gave a, a sense of what it meant. But nowadays, it, you, you would never use that. It's not what uh, is implied by meditative concentration. So that, that's sort of just one example. There, there are many. Um, <clears throat> or like uh, uh, I.B. Horner, my, my sainted aunt, um, uh, she liked the word kanka for asava. So the word asava is difficult to translate into English. It um, it has both a connotation of flowing, uh, like so the mind flowing out to, to get lost in an object, but it also has a connotation of, of rot, something rotting or something that is decayed. And so she liked the word kanka, which is like a kind of... Um, uh, a kind of... Um, boil or a sort of an infected sore in the body as a, a way of describing the asavas. It's both, it's both something that flows, like the pus flows out of the canker, and it's also kind of rotten, so canker. Um, so Ajahn Tanisaro translates uh, the asava as effluence, as, that, as something that's flowing out. Other people translate them as influxes. Uh, I, you know, I like the word outflows, but you know, so you can, you can see that there's different ways that you can render particular words. Um, 
But anyway, so I.B. Horner, in some of her, um, one of the ways of describing an arahant is that the, uh, uh, the asavas have ended, that the mind doesn't flow out into things, the mind is not kind of getting lost in things. So um, uh, the, uh, it's describing a quality of, of kind of purity and, and sort of clarity and, and sort of mental composure. But I.B. Horner, bless her heart, renders that as canker-waned. There are 500 canker-waned arahants. Canker-waned. Their cankers have waned. Like all of their, their boils have dried up. Like, like, well, yeah, it's kind of accurate. So the asavakaya, kaya meaning having stopped or ended. And yeah, the, 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 the cankers, if you take a, the asava as being cankers, like these sort of suppurating infections, they've stopped and then waning, like the, the moon waxing and waning, so that they've faded out. But in ordinary English, canker waned. Like, are your cankers waning? Have they waned, mineral posada? They're still waxing. Your, canker, your cankers are yet, yet in a state of wax, uh, in a state of, of waxment. So, yeah, people, they, they try their best, but they also, most of the, pretty much all of the early translators of, of the Pali into English and German and French and the early Europeans, they weren't meditators, so they didn't have an, an internal contemplative experience to map the the uh, the words onto. So they were doing the best they could with with the the um, the principles that they had, and also coming out of the sort of Judeo-Christian uh, conditioning uh, that they uh, that they were sort of born into, and that was a European mindset. So that. Um, uh, it's only more in the current times where you have people who are both meditators and translators who have the knowledge of the Pali language uh, and, the, and the English or German or French or Italian or whatever, um, who are also contemplatives who have the sort of the inner experience and in the using meditation, then they can bring about more a- accurate and, and uh, useful translations for people like Bhikkhu Bodhi or Bhikkhu Analeo or uh, Bhikkhu Nyanaponika and so forth. That they are far more kind of reliable because they, in a sense, they 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 know the territory that the uh, that they're talking about. They they know what the words are, are needing to refer to, so they can choose terms and ways of describing things that, that match the uh, the actual experience. The point is to let go of definitions and trying to attain states or hold to views about practice. Trying to achieve according to the viewpoints we have. Otherwise, we'll never be very successful. It's much more a question of awakening the human heart to reality, a reality which has no name. It's not a matter of defining or naming, but of recognizing and realizing. And this is ultimate simplicity. It's not complex. The more we hold to complexity, the more we get caught in that realm of thought and ideas. They might be beautiful thoughts, beautiful ideas, but liberation from suffering cannot be achieved through clinging to these kinds of things. It's very helpful, I think, to reflect on the ten fetters. The first three are personality belief, sceptical doubt, and attachment to rules and rituals. Now, personality belief is something I have talked a lot about. It's how we create this personality, how we identify with it, and feel we are our personalities. This is rarely questioned or investigated by most people because the sense that I am this person seems so real. But when you reflect on experience in the present, you find that the personality is something that is always changing. As someone was saying earlier, when she's with her mother, she is like this. When she's with her husband, she's like that. When she's with her pet cat, she's another way. And it's not the same person. When I was young, I had the idea that I ought to be the same person under all circumstances, that when I was with my mother and father, I should feel exactly the same as when I was with my friends. This was an ideal this was an ideal of not cheating, of not adapting myself to other people, of being the same personality under all conditions without wavering. Well, that was an ideal. <laughs> when, I, uh, when I went home, I found myself very quickly submitting to the old ways with my parents. It was easier to go along with it, uh, just kind of bear it rather than fight it. My parents wanted me to be their little boy again. It would have taken too much to resist that, so I just kind of gave into it. Because of that, however, I seldom went home. Then I felt I was being dishonest and made all kinds of value judgments around that. But in Buddhism, we have this term interdependency, or idapachayata, Pali, 
which means things arise when the conditions for them are present. So when your mother is present, the conditions are not the same as when your best friend is present. It's a different condition. You can reflect on this. Just observe how you adapt to conditions and how much they change. So you cannot sustain a permanent personality through the changing conditions that you inevitably experience. The stability, then, lies not in the personality, but in the awareness. So, uh, again, the, the first thing that Lumpur was saying there is how, you know, if you have a set of ideas of what a stream enter is supposed to be and how your uh, how, um, say self-view is constructed and you're trying to uh, go through the list of things to not feed self-view and not hold that in place, or you're going through the list of, of things that that you have to break through in order to uh, transcend doubt, or you're, you're uh, trying to carry around the whole list of things that you should do and shouldn't do in order to, to break free of um, uh, the attachment to conventions and so forth, all of that sort of trying to do uh, becomes very sort of clunky and complicated and difficult. It's, uh, so <clears throat> the, um, uh, the point that Lumpur is making is that if you approach those kind of uh, qualities in terms of their technicalities or the idea of them, it's rather like if you're trying to play a musical instrument, you know, you're you're sort of remembering um, you know, how the instrument is put together and uh, how much, uh, um, you know, uh, say, <clears throat> each note differs from the other notes and, and uh, the uh, <clears throat> trying to think about what the other instruments are playing, what you're playing. And so there's so much going on in your head, your fingers are necessarily going to go to the wrong place. You you can't hear be guided by what you're hearing you're 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 trying too hard you're, you're thinking it all through and so that the um the the message of that is that the the practice is a lot more direct even though there, there are many many words you know you have so 42 books of the of the pali canon and, and gazillions of dhamma talks and dhamma books that exist and um are available but um the application of the practice is not a complicated thing. And so in, in that respect, uh, I don't think Lumpur quotes it in this teaching, but one of the most, um, uh, say, important, uh, say, suttas or, or teachings that the Buddha gave that Ajahn Buddha Dasa used to quote quite often, he said, uh, uh, the Buddha summarized the entire teaching into four words. He said that in this one particular teaching called the um, Destruction of Craving, the, uh, the Chula Tanha Sankhaya Sutta, that, Shorter discourse on the destruction of craving. <clears throat> the Buddha said, um, uh, "If you've if you've heard this one thing, you've heard everything. If you've understood this one thing, you've understood everything. If you've practiced this one thing, you've practiced everything. If you've realized this one thing, you've you've realized everything." And what is that? Sabhe dhamma nalang abhinivesaya, uh, which means sabhe dhamma. Sabhe means all dhamma things. Uh, nalang do not. Abhinivesaya, attached to or cling to. So, not, uh, and then translate it into English as nothing whatsoever should be clung to. <laughs> or don't cling to anything. Don't cling to anything. Four words in English. Uh, so, so that, uh, and that, that's not a, an idle statement by the Buddha, saying if you've heard this, you've heard everything. If you've practiced this, you've, you've practiced everything. If you've realized this, you've realized everything. So that's the whole deal. <laughs> Don't cling to anything. Sabhe tamma nalang abhini vesaya. And uh, when I was visiting uh, 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 Watsuanmok in uh, the late 80s, I went there for two weeks um, and was able to listen to Ajahn Buddha Dasa giving talks every day. He said, I used to say you could boil it down into four words. Now I've got it down to three. <laughs> he said, I'm, and he was quite pleased with that. And the three words are, don't be selfish. <laughs> so, that's the whole teaching. And so that um, even though you have these sort of more intricate details or complex details of how everything's put together, like a human body, um, you know, there's, there's countless details of how it's all put together, the, um, the, the mind can dwell on the details and on the ideas of how it's all put together, or you can attune to the, to the present moment. <laughs> and that the, the, the emphasis that the Buddha makes is on... Clinging and the ending of the ending of clinging, that how the mind grasps, clings, and gets caught up in in craving and attachment, and how that's the the sort of the uh, the cause of suffering is that uh, uh, say craving and clinging, 
and that when the, 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 the clinging stops, then the suffering stops. That's the very core of the, of the Four Noble Truths. And so, sabhe dhamma nalang abhini vesaya, nothing, uh, <coughs> don't cling to anything. But then the, uh, the, uh, the comments that Lumpur makes about being a different person, this is something that probably most of us have, have, have recognized. Now, I had the same kind of feeling myself long before I came across Buddhism, that I, I used to wonder, I grew up in the, the countryside, uh, my parents were farmers, and uh, well, actually they met because they were dog breeders. So we had a sort of uh, a, a small farm and horses and dogs and, and out in the countryside. So part of the people that I grew up with were the horse riding and dog breeding uh, people. So I spent a lot of my childhood going to horse shows, gym carners, and um, uh, being with the, the sort of hunting, shooting, fishing brigade, people with green Wellington boots and... Uh, going to horse races and drinking lots of gin and tonic. So that was one, one world I lived in. And then there was the school friends I had that was, you know, being with this... I was at an all-boys uh, uh, school. I was a day pupil, but it was a boarding school. And so there was the school world of my school friends and the teachers and the school, uh, the school discipline and so forth. Then there was the family, my mother and father and my, myself, my, my sisters and cousins. There was the family world. Then when I, I left home... And I went to university in London. There was a sort of the, the university world, the the, um, uh, the college I was at in London, of London University, and the, the uh, sort of the <coughs> physiology department and the psychology department and the, the, the lecturers and professors and the, all the sort of classes I was supposed to be learning. And then there was the kind of hippie anarchists I would hang out with in London. And so there were these diff- about five different worlds that I would move between, these sort of rowdy, drunk public school boys you know, old school friends, and then my, my parents and family, and I was the, sort of the, the youngest child of this the family group, and then there was the sort of hunting, shooting, fishing, green Wellington crowd, you know, out at the, uh, the, um, with the, the horse riding lots. Then there were the hippie anarchists in London, and then there was the, the, um, <coughs> the people in the, in the university. And, I used to, and I'm quite a, an adaptable character, so I'd find when I'm with the hippie anarchists, I'm a total hippie anarchist. When I'm with the the uh, the gin and tonic and uh, and uh, horse riding set I'll be sort of in amongst that and quite happy with that. When I was with the family I would just sort of play along with the family uh, ideals and 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 uh, values and so forth. And I used to get the this this kind of puzzle: which one's the real me? Because I kind of feel at home in all these five different worlds. So which one's the real one? And so I think that's how I ended up in the monastery. You know? <laughs> so, because I would just sort of find myself adapting and going along with whatever the people around me were doing. So, well, yeah, I can do that. I can play the part, but am I really interested in horse riding and gin and tonic? And, and, uh, and yeah, am I really interested in this sort of um, uh, the academic world or you know, the, the, the family interests? You know? uh, what, what, what am I really, um, what's really meaningful to me? But I, I was uh, very much the, the experience that... Um, that Lumpur is describing here, if you say, I am this one person, and I, I'm always going to be this person, and I'm going to hold this to this one standard wherever I am. And, and some people are like that, that they just don't adapt to circumstances. They're always uh, exactly the same, and they sort of demand that the people around them see them <laughs> in that way. But that uh, ends up being um, often a, uh, a way of clashing with others quite, quite easily. But uh, <clears throat> that um, sense of being... Uh, being able to recognize how uh, we are all different people. So to our, our parents, even if you might be 50 or 60 or, or 80 years old, you're still their little child. I remember um, one of the, uh, the um, directors of the English Sangha Trust, Frida Wind, when she was 80, and her mother was something like 98, she said, I- I'm 80 years old, and my mother still treats me like I'm 12. <laughs> It's like, and it's amazing, you know, that she was, Frida was kind of way older than, than uh, any of us monastics, but then she said, when I get, when I'm around my mother, I'm 12 years old again, and I'm 80! <laughs> but that's what she would find herself doing and being. And so that, uh, as Longpore points out here, you know, you can resist it and say, I'm a grown-up, I'm the abbot of Amaravati Monastery, you know, you should, I'm not just your little boy, and you can do that, but it's also like, but actually, you are. <laughs> You, you can't say to your parents, don't see me in the way that you see me, because uh, you can say that, but it, it won't change the way that they, they see things. You can't, you know, it's not under your control. So that um, 
appreciating the the fact that um, there are many different versions of the world, like I was uh, saying in the morning reflection today, there, that we each have our own version of the world and we can't control what other people's versions of the world are. And if we want to end suffering, then along with our preferred version of the world, our own preferred reality, then it's important for us to attune how are other people seeing us? How are other people relating to us? So in the monastery here, you know, I'm the abbot of Amravati, so people are very respectful and polite. And they sort of come up, they then sort of come up and say hello. They come up, bow three times, and that doesn't happen at Waterloo Station. <laughs> if I'm sitting on a bench waiting for a train, then you know, someone might come and say, "Hello, who are you then?" You know, and that's totally fair. Why shouldn't they? They see this person dressed in strange, strange garb. They're not going to come up and bow three times. Well, they might do, but they say, who's this weird bloke? What's he, what's he about? And they, they, want to, they want to find out what you're up to, so they, they, they ask. And so to say, excuse me, you should bow three times before you speak to me. <laughs> so uh, as I say, adaptability is the key to happiness. And so appreciating that other people see us in ways that, uh, <coughs> that are not under our control if we can really take that to heart and not demand that we be seen in a certain way, like, don't you know who I am? Uh, then, uh, you know, we'll create, you know, if, we can, if we can adapt, then we can, we can uh, save ourselves a lot of suffering. The point then is to notice the personality belief, sakayaditi, but without thinking there is anything wrong with it. When the conditions are good, we have a positive, good human personality. When the conditions are not very good, we become grumpy, or angry, or jealous. If there's no condition to make me jealous, of course, there's no jealousy. But as conditions change, jealousy might arise. Then the personality will lay claim to that, judge it, and make some criticism about it. I shouldn't feel jealous, it's wrong and it's my fault. And there is this self-disparagement that takes place. So looking at it through interdependency, I found was a more useful way of investigating the experience of changing conditions. We can be aware of this changingness and realize that the awareness is not a personality, yet it is discerning. There's intelligence, discernment and wisdom from that point of awareness. From awareness then, we have the capability of either acting or not acting. The other day somebody said they thought that if you were always mindful, you wouldn't really be able to do anything. So you might see people starving on the streets and just say, well, impermanence, watch the sadness in the heart and it'll change. It's possible to be like that, of course, but you might also actually do something. The action, however, would not be a reaction, it would be more spontaneous. Actions coming out of awareness have a spontaneity about them and are more appropriate to time and place rather than being reactive habits. So this is a very good point. This is a kind of radical misunderstanding of mindfulness that uh, does happen from time to time. And that um, <clears throat> the, uh, I, I was um, proofreading a, 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 a book um, that's being reprinted and um, one of the, uh, the stories that um, uh, Ajahn uh, Sundra was w in, the, in the questions and answer part of this book. She was responding to a question and somebody had said how um, they were on a retreat and they were so sort of focused on being mindful uh, when they were in the dining hall of this retreat center, somebody started choking on their food, and the person said, choking, choking, choking. <laughs> oh, she's choking! And, and the, the first few seconds, it was just like, I'm, I'm being mindful of the sound of this person choking, and then it took a few moments, like, oh my God! You know, and so jumping up and helping this person to, to not die in the, uh, in the dining hall. So I'd say that's uh, what Lumpur is pointing to here is a radical misunderstanding of, of mindfulness. As you say, you wouldn't really be able to do anything. You might see people starving on the streets and say, well, impermanence. That's just like you know, someone tells you that your, your mother's just died. And you say, well, okay, well, sankaras are impermanent. You know, People are born and then they die. And that's your mum. And so that as a kind of false um, abstraction, the way the mind um, takes an idea of mindfulness or takes an idea of non-attachment and then pastes that over the, the experience of, of reality, of the moment. And so one of the, th the things that I say over and over and over again to counteract this, this wrong view is that our capacity to act is part of the way things are. Our, our ability to take initiative 
make choices, do stuff, that's part of the way things are. That's not an intrusion on the way things are. That's part of the way things are. This life, this body, this mind is already part of the universe. To sort of say, I'll just, just watch, I'll just be the observer, I'm just going to be the witness, that is, uh, as, that's making a, 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 taking a stance as if this body, this life, this mind was somehow not connected to the living world, not connected to the human family, not connected to the planet and the, 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 um, the whole sort of uh, living moment that we're a part of. And so it's a really good example of grasping an idea and, uh, and sort of uh, in an incorrect way. So that would be kind of micha sati, wrong mindfulness, or micha ditti, wrong view. And it's very, it's very, very common in the, not just the Buddhist world, but the religious world, where you're, you take an idea and then it might be completely counter to what the original religious teacher intended. But you're so determined to be faithful and good and a, a sort of a sincere practitioner that you you grasp the idea out of sincerity, but you you make a total mess of it. You, you grasp it in the wrong way, and so that um, the uh, uh, the the end result is that you get more and more sort of isolated in your own rightness <laughs> or your own sort of practice, and. Uh, the genuine attunement to the time, the place, the situation, the genuine liberation of the heart gets, gets obstructed. Like, uh, 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 I forget whether it was during this retreat, but I was being told a story of a, a Western monk in, in Sri Lanka who um, was so sort of fixed on the tradition and the form that when his parents came to, to visit him from the U.S., that you know he demanded that they would bow to him three times and they would re- you know, refer to him as Bhante and... Yeah, they weren't Buddhists. They were only there because he was their son. But he's demanding that they act as though they were his, that they were Buddhists and they were his students, and that they they relate to him in that um, formal way. And so you can understand he's trying to be faithful to the tradition. I'm not trying to make fun of him, but that it's a, I would say that's a misguided sincerity or a, a wrong grasping of form of the. So it's like a classic sort of sila pata paramasa trying to do the right thing so sincerely trying to do the right thing that it turns out absolutely wrong <laughs> that, that then the parents apparently were sort of very sincerely trying to go along with this but like <laughs> it was really heartbreaking and difficult for them they thought our oh, son has really gone crazy or this is this is really just um this is too much you know we're 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 um, we're not here because we're Buddhists. And my, my mother, bless her heart, was, was far more blunt and direct in, in that. So when, uh, <clears throat> when um, these kind of things came up with me visiting in the early days, she would say, uh, I'm not, uh, I, I, don't, I don't care about you because you're, a, because you're a bloody Buddhist. I care about you because you're my son. Full stop. <laughs> Compris? She would lapse into French when she wanted to make a point. So, okay, got you, mum. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that was, you know, and if if uh, I was getting a bit too sort of, well, we like this, or we, you know, we believe in that, and and uh, and uh, you know, I remember get, uh, actually receiving that comment in a in a in a aerogram from her, uh, a letter from her when I was in Thailand, and and yeah, you recognise well, good point, <laughs> because you can be so filled with your own your own trip, your own perspective, and you, you're kind of unconsciously expecting everyone else to go along with it. And so, yeah, that's right. You know, there's this uh, uh, woman living in England. She's my mother. She cares about me. She, you know, the, I've become a, a Buddhist. I've gone into a monastery. I've become a monk. It's kind of uh, several thousand miles away from where she is. She's not writing to me because she's interested in Buddhism <laughs> or because I'm a monk. She's writing because uh, uh, we're connected because she's my mother. That's the connection. And so if I'm saying, no, you should only see me as a monk now. So. Well, <laughs> so I, I feel that um, uh, when we are genuinely mindful, when, the, when there is a, a genuine attunement to the time, the place, the situation, yes, you, you can uh, be faithful to your own perspective and your own, uh, your own views, but also, when you see somebody starving on the street or somebody is sitting at the next table choking, then you, know, you are involved. You're, you're part of that. You're, you're, you're connected to that. And so t- taking some sort of 
abstracted or remote position, some kind of... Uh, I'm just observing this. It's a, uh, I say that's steering the mind towards a, a kind of dissociation. It's a, it's a false kind of non-attachment. Uh, and that, that only leads to uh, like a disconnect and a, and a real sort of hardening of the heart rather than a liberation of the heart, in my humble opinion. When we see poverty-stricken people on the streets, we could develop a habit of, oh, isn't it too bad for them, and go into a kind of pity where we see life as unfair, but still without doing anything. Or we might feel compelled to act, because if we don't, we'll feel guilty. Our actions then, even if they are good, often have some kind of delusion attached to them. It is, of course, better to do good through delusion than to not do anything, but it isn't necessarily going to be liberating for you. And you're then inclined to think, maybe I should have done more. Maybe I should have done this or that. I remember a sort of conundrum which went around some years ago. Should you give money to a tramp who is obviously an alcoholic? Because if you do, you'll just go out and buy more booze with it. So maybe you should take him for a meal instead. That, of course, puts you in a moral dilemma. Am I really perpetuating his horrible habit by giving him money? Because I don't have time to take him to McDonald's? Then you say to the tramp, I'm going to take you to McDonald's. And he doesn't want to go. He says, McDonald's hamburgers are carcinogenic. Alcohol is better. And you think, maybe that's right. <laughs> so before we carry on to the next fetter, any questions, thoughts, reflections? Lumpur is not encouraging the consumption of alcohol. Or... But, uh, just making a point. Okay. Another of the first three fetters is Silapata Paramasa which is generally translated as attachment to rites and rituals. Now this has never been a great problem for most Western monks, because Westerners in general tend to look down on the rites and rituals that take place in Buddhist temples rather than get attached to them. We are, however, attached to views and opinions, ideals and conventions. We get very attached to, quote, our form of Buddhism, unquote, or our way of keeping the Vinaya, or our teacher, our group, our monastery. If you invest a lot of your life in these institutions, you do get very attached to them, and to Buddhism itself. Attachment to rites and rituals, therefore, isn't just a matter of believing that if you light candles and incense and offer flowers, you're purifying your mind in some way. That's never been one of my attachments anyway. My attachments have been more around the Thai forest tradition, and Ajahn Chah, or our way of doing things. I feel this incredible loyalty to Ajahn Chah, and also to the Thai Sangha, which has put such a lot of trust in me. I don't want to disappoint them. I don't want to let them down. Attachments, then, can often be quite noble-hearted and high-minded. But when you really look at even these, you realize that attachment itself creates suffering. It blinds you, and you can get stuck somehow through this blindness, burdened by being dutiful, by trying to uphold and defend, by doing the right thing and saving the world. It's a way of thinking and experiencing life that tends to be rather onerous. That means it's a burden or stressful, it's kind of heavy, onerous. At first it can be quite inspiring to think like that, but after a while you just feel burdened, weighed down by some heavy thing that, you've, that you have created. People sometimes say to me, well, why don't you just disrobe and leave it all behind? But that's another kind of attachment, isn't it? The conundrum for me is how to let go of the conventions that I am representing. How do I stop holding on and carrying them around with me? I found that reflectiveness and awareness is the answer, because it's not a matter of doing anything other than letting them go in my mind. It's a question of seeing through the illusions I have about myself and about my tradition, of seeing the fear around betraying or letting down my group and disappointing people. The fear of failure goes with the sense of success, duty, and living up to things. You can't have the one without the other. The challenge, then, is to recognize letting go by becoming conscious of what attachment or clinging is. Reflectiveness and mindfulness allow me to witness in my mind the sense of myself being of the Thai forest tradition, say, and how that perception affects my consciousness. What comes from thinking the thought that I'm a representative of the Thai forest tradition here in Europe, and that Ajahn Chah trusted me to come here, and that I'm responsible. I can stop thinking about it and just feel this sense of, I'm responsible for all this. 
And if I stay with that feeling without justifying, denying, or doing anything about it, I notice the energy changing. The tension I create about being responsible drops away, just by noticing that attachment is the way we don't let go. We feel these burdens. We feel we are doing the right thing. We are good and trying our best. We analyze and justify everything. But it isn't a matter of figuring it out. It's more about noticing how perceptions affect consciousness in the present. By making a perception fully conscious, by allowing it to be, by noticing the way we feel physically, maybe in the heart or the abdomen, and by noticing the mood that generates from that perception, not critical of it, not analyzing or judging it, but just noticing it, then it changes. We can't sustain it. We have to keep thinking something over and over again in order to get some kind of sustainable sense of it. If we just let it be, that tension of grasping is recognized and naturally drops away, because we're not doing anything to create more of it. I found this as a skillful way of freeing myself from the kind of altruistic nature and attachment I have around the monastic life and Buddhism. So this is, uh, uh, say, the part of the conundrum, uh, the kind of puzzle of the use of religious conventions. Um, and how can you use a convention? Now, this is you know, 2,500 years old, 25 centuries, say 500 years old, you're older than Christianity. Um, it's the Buddhist monasticism is the longest-lasting human institution still functioning under its original bylaws. So we're old. <laughs> this is a very old form, a very old t tradition in many ways. And the, the, the trick or the, the puzzle is how to use a, a, a very a ancient and structured form, a tradition and set of conventions, and to use those conventions for liberation rather than just uh, a form to attach to. It was, it was quite interesting going to the Vatican uh, recently because I have almost no connection to Catholicism at all. I mean, around a few Catholic people over the years, but uh, I don't have any kind of emotional connection to it as a set of values and mores and systems that I'm not a part of. I don't, I don't know how, how it all works. And, and so that the, um, the, the signals are all different, whereas with the, so the Theravada Buddhist monastic tradition, you kind of recognize our system of how things are done and who sits where and who goes through the door first and who's at the front, who's at the back. <laughs> uh, and then being in a whole different system, after a while I realized the cardinals wear scarlet and the bishops wear purple and, and the pope wears white. He's easily marked. He's, he's all in white. And that uh, the, um, uh, just suddenly plunked into a whole different set of conventions. And for the people who are the devout Catholics uh, who've grown up with that, then they have a, a connection to all of that. And then the others of us who are sort of out, you know, outsiders like me as a Buddhist monk or some Hindu swamis or the, the shaman from Greenland, it's like, well, hey, what's going on here? <laughs> you're kind of, uh, you, you don't know how to read the codes. You're not, you're not in that, in that um, set of conventions. And so that, uh, that uh, in a sense, stepping out uh, and looking at the, uh, the conventions from the outside or not, not really recognizing how they work, that's, a way of recollecting, oh yeah, well, what I'm used to is just another set of conventions, just another way of doing things. And that um, the one of the things about uh, uh, Lumpur Cha and uh, one of the most striking aspects of his, his, his way of being, his style, was that he was both a completely sincere and orthodox sort of Theravada monk, uh, who, uh, the strict practitioner of uh, the Vinaya discipline and uh, sort of team player for Theravada Buddhism, but also he was completely un, uh, unburdened by the conventions and forms that, that he was a part of, that he was embodying. And that, um, as I've often said, talking about that, even though I couldn't understand Thai, but you, and a lot of the things you couldn't really figure out what was going on when you were around him or around teaching situations, you could see the sense of, of both being uh, completely orthodox and sort of strict and kind of proper with a capital P um, in everything, but yet uh, and, and and very sincere and respectful of the traditions and forms, but completely un, uh, unburdened by that, unlimited by that. That it was very clear that it was 
it was a, not something that was stressful or difficult or, or anything that was uh, a, uh, a, uh, a burden in any, in any way, shape or form for him. And I remember in those early days when I was at like Anagarika and Avis, just when I would see him around and be and uh, be close by, you get I, I got as far as how does he do that? <laughs> because I'd always assumed if you want to be free, you kind of defy all the conventions. You don't have any rules. You don't have any structure. You don't have any restrictions. You don't have any laws. You know, all that stuff you just don't bother with, and that's what makes you free. But I tried that as a hippie anarchist <laughs> seen in in uh, London and that. And realizing that most of the other hippie anarchists were not free people at all, and were, um, you know, they might defy a certain number of rules, but you meet people who are kind of um, ardent sort of uh, 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 anarchists who are signing on for the, for social security. I said, well, hang on a minute, I thought you were an anarchist. How come you're getting the doll? How does that fit? I thought you were against the system, but you're signing on and getting money from the system. How does that work? Anyway. Um, that uh, that was very very striking. How what Ajahn Chah was embodying, and and I feel what uh, Lumpur Sumato has really brought to the West in in a wonderful and clear way is that quality of both a sincere and uh, and wholehearted use of the tradition, but without identification with it. And and, and there were many times when Lumpur Sumato would be sitting kind of right here, <laughs> giving a Dhamma talk, and uh, he'd say something like. Yeah, I'm not interested in uh, in turning you into a bunch of bloody Buddhists. Like the most kind of terrible insult. Buddhists, like he'd almost be spitting the word out. Ugh, yeah. But a horrible idea. And not trying to be disrespectful, but say, if you're making the robe an identity, you've, you might as well just go, just leave now. This is, you're, you're totally missed a point. And, and uh, he'll get your attention that way. Because, you know, he said, and he would say the same thing about himself. He said, I'm not a Buddhist monk in order to be a Buddhist monk. And I've said the same thing. You know. it's, it's not a career move. It's not an identity. It's a vehicle. It's like, you know, are you a Fiat? Are you a Toyota? Are you an Audi? You know. Are you a Honda? No, but that might be the vehicle you climb into and go places. Yeah. yeah am I... Uh, you know, the uh, the London Midland Railway. No, but I get on a train, <laughs> Berkhamsted, and go to Euston. It's a vehicle to to, to get from one place to another. So if um, you re- relate to the, to the robe and the traditions and the forms in that way, with you can be completely sincere and uh, wholehearted in the use of the form and, and genuinely respectful, but also keeping it in context. It's not an identity. You're not being a Buddhist nun or a Buddhist monk in order to be a nun, to be a monk. It's not an identity. It's a it's a vehicle. It's a, a means to an end. If um, <clears throat> someone comes and says, I want to be a Buddhist monk, it's like, whoa. <laughs> then often it's because the, the mind is latched onto an identity and that uh, so taking it as a form. So that, uh, I, that what he's saying here is... Uh, um, both relating to self-view and also relating to attachment to conventions. That if uh, conventions are understood, then they can really serve us well. They can they can do a fantastic job, like the convention of a book or convention of language. You know, sitting here making these noises, yeah, it has a value, right? But uh, I could just be pronouncing, I could be reciting the Padimokha, you know, in Pali, and you could all be sitting there going. Well, it's kind of impressive. It's, it's sort of a fluid sound, but what does it mean? It doesn't have any value. So the convention of language, it conveys a meaning, uh, and that meaning helps us to, to, to change the heart. So that conventions can be useful, but if we attach to them um, and to think that they have a, a value in and of themselves, then they become an obstruction. They become, they're not serving the purpose for which they are intended. So you know, when Lumpur Sumato would make those comments, like, you know, I'm not interested in turning you into a bunch of bloody Buddhists, but, uh, you know, some people would be quite shocked, you know, usually more of the Asian people in the group. <laughs> but also a few of the Westerners, like, but I came here to be a Buddhist, yeah. And I'm trying to get over, you know, my, my, uh, my conditioning as a Christian or, as, uh, or whatever. <clears throat> but the, the point of speaking in that way is to, to recognize that, the Buddha taught not to make people into Buddhists, but to help people to awaken. 
And then he, the Buddha spent 45 years establishing the Vinaya discipline, the precepts, the, you know, the, the five precepts, the eight precepts, the ten precepts, and the, 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 nun, the nuns and monks precepts, as forms, very specifically structured uh, ways of speaking, of living, of how you use uh, your dwelling place, your clothing, your food, how you relate to sickness, and how you relate to, to uh, other people, other living things, you know, very specifically ordered. You know, the Vinaya is, uh, is very, very detailed. Um, so it's a very definite structures that he put in place, but not just to attach to a structure. <laughs> you know, it's a vehicle. It's a, it's a very finely uh, formed and intricately uh, constructed vehicle. That uh, that can be used for a particular purpose. That's that's what it's for. If you just attach the vehicle, say, I'm an Audi driver. I'm a Honda driver. Yeah, I've got a Fiat. You know. So <laughs> we can be totally identified with our vehicle, but what's the point of that? It's like our, our name, our family name. You can be really, can be really proud of that, or the, you know, I'm, or your nationality. It's the uh, whole uh, um, Brexit um, thing. <laughs> Being, being British or being English or being uh, belonging to Europe, you know, the the mind can make so much out of of those kind of identities. But if there's wisdom, you recognise that that being being a man, being a woman, being a, a monastic, being a layperson, being a British, uh, being English. You know, I often point out that where we are now, this used to be the Kingdom of Essex, fifteen hundred years ago. This wasn't England. England didn't exist. This was this was the kingdom of Essex, where we are now, and then a thousand years before that, even Essex didn't exist. Yeah, so <clears throat> you know, where are we? <laughs> so if we recognise these conventions of our name, our family, our uh, so how many years we've been a monastic, or uh, I'm a layperson, or I'm a a, a a visitor, that these are are convenient fictions. And we can use them, and and we relate to them respectfully, but then they then they serve the purpose of freeing the heart from from dukkha, rather than being an identity to attach to. Just to read a little bit more. So, what is the monastic life really for? Is it to make me into an arahant? I want to become an arahant, so I'll join the monastery. That would be using a conventional form to become something. I'm not an arahant now, but if I practice diligently for years in the monastic form, I might become one. That would be personality belief and attachment to conventions both together. It would be using the conventional form out of ignorance and attachment on a personal level. You meet people who give up the monastic life after a while because it doesn't work for them. One can be inspired to begin with and really try one's hardest, but that kind of energy can't be sustained. Not with the monastic life, or with marriage, or with a career, or with anything. It isn't possible. It's rather a question of noticing that, mon- that the monastic conventions are there for awareness. The point is to use this awareness in order to put into perspective the conventions that you adhere to, the way you hold yourself as a person, the attachments you have to the institution of family, or to being English, or Scottish, or Welsh, or Tibetan, or American, the idea of being a man or a woman, being gay or being lesbian or anything. When you bring conditions into awareness, what are they? If you make them fully conscious but don't create anything out of them, they drop away. The need to define yourself falls away. What is left is liberation. The sense of being unlimited, not being bound by the limitations of identifying with the physical body, its gender, behavior, ideas, conventions, personality habits. You somehow see beyond the delusions that you create. However you define yourself is always going to create suffering. If I try to define myself as a good Buddhist monk, if that's my ideal, I can never be good enough. Actually, I've given up on that one because the critical mind will say, you've dropped marmalade on your robe this morning. Not very mindful. And yeah, Lumpur will often say that. Yes, I'm, a, yeah, I'm a messy eater. So he probably wasn't joking. He probably had dropped marmalade on his robe that morning. <laughs> it wasn't just a sort of a figure of speech, he was actually talking about the marmalade on his robe. Now the third fetter, Vichikicca, is defined as sceptical doubt. And doubt is created by attachment to thought. People have told me how they try to solve their dilemmas in their lives. 
Should I do this or should I do that? And how they just get caught in doubt. They ask me, what do you think, Ajahn Sumato? Should I do A or should I do B? Then we try to analyze it. Well, if you do A, you'll get these advantages. And if you do B, you'll get those advantages. Which do you really want? Well, I'm not sure. Some days I want to do A, and some days I want to do B. So then I say, well, just stop worrying about it. Let it go. Forget it for a while. The point is, if you let go of trying to figure things out, the answer usually comes. And it's usually the right one. I've made many mistakes because of not liking that feeling of doubt, though. I've chosen arbitrarily A, then regretted it when it turned out to be the wrong choice. So uh, <clears throat> I'll leave it there, uh, leave it there for today. And um, the as uh, <clears throat> it's already after seven o'clock, but uh, uh, the Lumpur has uh, more to say about these uh, particular aspects of uh, of liberation. So uh, that will carry on tomorrow if we're all still here. Namayang damakata satukaran tatama se Sadhu